Welcome to the third episode of the podcast about uh, biblical commentators entitled Who the Heck is That Guy? with Akiva Weisinger. Uh, this week we're going to be discussing the Rashbam, but as an intro to this discussion of the Rashbam, I'd like to ask you the following question. Can creativity exist in a religious tradition? Now, people who aren't religious may say no, because, you know, you have to do these laws all the time, you don't have, you know... You, you have somebody telling you what to do all the time. Uh, and in some Haredi communities, that is true. Like, you don't have any room for creativity. But I think most religious people do see creativity as having some relation to the religious life, which is creativity uh, is this, you know, drive that we have that, uh, you know, when it's boundless, it becomes a mess. We don't know what to do with it, mostly. And religion helps, you know, direct this. Religion helps direct this creative drive uh, that we have towards, you know, s something that is towards a certain purpose. Um, to give an example, not from religion, but from music... Uh, the White Stripes are a two-person band, uh, Jack and Meg White. Uh, Meg White is pretty much universally acknowledged as not a great drummer. Uh, but the White Stripes are a great band. And it's not despite the fact that the White Stripes don't have a great drummer. It is because of the fact that the White Stripes have a great drummer. Uh, have, don't have a great drummer. Jack White is an amazing guitar player. And, you know, he tends to go off into some crazy place uh, when left alone to his own devices. And having, like, you know, a very simple drum beat uh, is not... Um, uh, having a very simple drum beat keeps him grounded and, make, and he makes better music than his solo albums. Uh, maybe I'm alone in thinking this. Maybe I'm not, but whatever. Uh, that's the example I'm choosing to go by. Cool. Um, so, you know, creativity, so we have this idea that creativity is like this boundless, you know, force and, you know, we need to direct it towards like, uh, you know, higher purpose. Religion helps us do that. Um, but the question I want to ask is, can creativity be its own value, even if it's undirected, even if it's towards, not towards a certain purpose? If I'm not directing my creativity towards a practical or moral or divine or whatever purpose, does that too have value, especially within a religious uh, tradition, a religious tradition, a religious community? The gut answer would be no, because you know we like you know religion to permeate everything about our lives. But you know, maybe there's an idea that that drive for creativity is itself valuable. So I think Rush Baum in his commentary points us towards an interesting way to think about this question. And that's what I want to explore in this podcast. So here's what we know about the Rush Baum. It's not much, okay? We know he's Rashi's grandson. And uh, he's, he's Rashi's grandson. And he wrote commentaries. One commentary is the one we're talking about, the one in the Torah. And one is, uh, he picks up where Rashi left off when Rashi died. There's a thing in the Gemara where it says, Rashi died here. Here's the Rashbam. The Rashbam takes over, 
He's not as good as Rashi, but nobody is. Uh, and, you know, after, uh, he wrote those two commentaries. He died. Uh, may have been able to read Latin and participated in, uh, may have, per- uh, and he participated in debates with Christians. Um, here's some notes about the commentary itself. It was not a very popular commentary. Uh, very few manuscripts existed. Okay. Uh, there was one left, uh, one manuscript containing his commentary left. It got lost in the Holocaust because you needed more reasons to hate Nazis. The rest of it I could forgive. Losing the rush bomb, no, that is not what I actually say. say. Please don't take that clip out of context. Um, the manuscript that was left, that we had, did not have the first 18 chapters of uh, Bereshit, or Genesis, uh, for those people who are not up to date on, uh, not up with the Hebrew lingo. I'm just going to use Bereshit from this point on and the, the Hebrew names uh, just because I won't have to constantly stop. But uh, just so you know, uh, we also don't have uh, his. Con- we also don't have his commentary in the last two chapters of Devarim, the uh, or as you may call it, Deuteronomy. But henceforth, Devarim. Um, afterwards, after we had this, we found Rashbam on the first thirty-one psukim of Bereshit. Uh, we also apparently found the last couple of psukim of, of Devarim. Uh, but it's not in print editions, uh, which annoys me. But uh, let's talk less about like these dry academic matters of you know, manuscripts and such, um, although it will become important. And let's look at how the Rashbam defines his own commentary and what he does in his commentary. Okay, Here's the most often cited, for very good reason, uh, and, uh, you know, most explanatory um, statement from the Rashbam as to what his commentary is supposed to do. Okay? Rashbam on Genesis 37 to, uh, 37.2. Okay? Uh, after explaining a comment of some sort, he launches into this essay of some sort. Uh, he says, Those who love pure reason should always remember that the sages have said a biblical passage must not be deprived of its plain meaning. Sages said, uh, uh, the sages said that the uh, a biblical passage must not be deprived from its plain meaning. Now, what they meant by that was very limited, but the Rashbam is going to take that idea and push it to its extreme. Uh, because the main point of the Torah comes to teach us and tell us in hints found in the plain meaning of the text the Haggadot and Halachot and laws derived through lengthy words and the 32 and 13 laws by which we derive texts of the Torah. It's very important. Rashbam thinks that the Dreshot of Chazal, uh, which are the, you know, the ways that the sages derived the laws and, you know, meanings of the text and, you know, expanded on the stories in the text, are, are derived from, you know, extra letters and extra words and, you know, the 13 ways that, the 13 and 32 ways that laws are derived. But they do not necessarily reflect the plain meaning of the text. There are hints in the plain text, which, you know, are the basis of our, you know, legal system, 
Uh, and Rashbam even goes so far as to say that's the main point of the Torah is not the text itself, but the hints in the text that are at the basis of our Lachic system. But that is not the plain meaning of the text. Uh, the Rishonim, who you know are the people before him, he's one of the Rishonim, uh, so it's kind of jarring uh, as we use the term today. Uh, so it's kind of jarring to hear him uh, refer to the Rishonim, but you know the people who came before him, because of their piety, busied themselves with the drashot as their focus, and they did not regularly delve into the plain meaning of the text. And because a Chachamim said not to spend too much time with logic, uh, and it, that doesn't mean that the Chachamim were against logic. It just means you know not to you know spend your time on philosophy, I guess. And express the significance not of learning Torah, but of learning Talmud as having no greater measure. They they put a stress on learning Talmud over Torah. Uh, they did not regularly engage with establishing the plain meaning of the text. In other words, we were so busy learning the halachas from it, we didn't really focus on the plain meaning of the text, what the text is actually saying. Even Rashi, the father of my mother, is bringing Rashi into this. Uh, his grandfather said it's hard to explain the plain meaning of the text. Even my grandfather Shlomo was an adherent of this school. Uh, he says that, you know, despite the fact that we said that Rashi is committed to understanding the drashot of Chazal, uh, understanding how the drashot of Chazal fit into the text, uh, my grandfather agreed with me. He was part of this school. We hinted to that a little bit last time, but he says the, Rash bomb, uh, the, the Rashi agreed with me. How do I know? Well, he's his grandson. Uh, I had an argument with him on that account. They had a discussion. They had an argument, family argument in which he admitted that he would make new commentaries according to the plain meanings that arise each day. Uh, the, the Hebrew, which will become important, pshatim hamuchudashim b'cholyom. The uh, explanations, hamuchudashim, uh, the Sephardic translation is plain meanings that arise each day. That's not an accurate translation. Mechudashim is from the root chadash, meaning new. Mechudashim is that may that are made new that are you know come into newness i guess so more created would be uh the right term uh each day every day uh, you know e each day uh so first so there's a couple of takeaways i want you to take from this source okay first of all the guts on this guy i mean <laughs> He's Rashi, uh, yes, he's gra Rashi's grandson. He may have, uh, you know, related to him as a grandfather instead of, you know, Rabban Shel Yisrael. But he says, uh, he says, I had an argument with Rashi and he admitted I was right. It causes me to question a little bit. Uh, was Rashi genuine in his agreement or was he like, uh, okay, sure, kid, uh, whatever you say. Yeah, I totally would have done your com done commentary like you. Okay, sure. Um, we don't have any record of Rashi saying anything on the of the sort, but I have to wonder sometimes if the Rush bomb uh, properly interpreted this interaction with his grandfather. Okay, um, Rashi agreed that he would have rewritten his commentary to be more in line with Pshatim Hemuchudashim Bechulim. The way that we translated that is the explanations that are created each day. That's an interesting phrase which we'll come back to later. I just want you to make note of that phrase and th start to think about what that could mean. Um, so let's restate the uh, Rashbaum's methodology. I'm going to interpret the plain meaning of the text without reference to Midrashic sources, which, derive based, which are derived based on hints in the text. 
In other words, there are two Torahs going on, according to the Rashbam. There's the plain Torah that you, you read, and then there's like a hidden Torah of, you know, hints and extra letters and stuff, and that is, you know, what the Chazal build on. Um, so, how far does he take Pshuto Shel Mikra? How far does he take the plain meaning of the text? Because whether he goes so far, whether it, it, it really depends, a lot depends on whether he's going to take it as far as narrative and whether he's going to take it as far as halacha. Let me explain. Um, you know, there are Drushel Chazal in the, uh, there, there are two types of texts that are in the Torah. There's the stories, like, you know, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, you know, stories in the, in the text. And then there's all the legal texts, which are, uh, you know, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that, okay? Um, Drushel Chazal exists on all of that. However, the narrative sections of the Torah aren't the basis of the halachic system. If you decide to interpret Avraham as, um, you know, Yitzchak as 13 instead of 37 on the Akedah, uh, at, you know, at the Akedah, to cite one example, that doesn't pose a problem for the entire structure of Judaism as we know it. Just does not. We'll see. Let's see the Rosh Bama narrative because does he take it, uh, does he take it that far? We'll t we'll see the Rosh Bama narrative. But if he takes it as far as halacha, if he goes uh, so far as to say that the legal portions of the text have a plain meaning, which are you know overridden by the Drashot of Chazal, that's saying that we went away against the word of God, the plain meaning of the word of God. Uh, to come up with our own thing. That is a problem. Okay? So let's look at the Rashbam on narrative sources, okay? Let's start with that because I want to illustrate a little bit about his approach on that, okay? Um, Rashbam has a lot of programmatic statements, uh, I, I found. I didn't know this before, but here's a statement on the first parak of, uh, first pasuk of Beratius. Um, that's source number two in here. Enlightened ones shall understand that all the words of our masters and their interpretations are true and well-founded. Um, you know, the Drashat Chazal are true and they're well-founded. This is what is stated in the Talmudic Tractate Shabbos. I was 18 years old, didn't know that scripture does not depart from its plain meaning. The essential part of the laws and interpretations stem from otherwise extraneous phrasings of scripture or from a change in language where the simple meaning of scripture is written in a manner that enables learning from it the essential part of the interpretation, such as these are the generations of heavens and earth in their being created, in their being created. Okay, so let me go back a little bit here. Um, he's restating what we've said before, that there are, uh, you know, extraneous words and, you know, hints in the Torah, and that's the basis of the Drash al-Khazal, and there, but that doesn't, you know, detract from the simple meaning of the text. He's going to give an example from this first pasuk. Okay, uh, the you know, the the midrash on uh, this pasuk, Ela toldos hashemayim b'haaretz bihibraam. These are the uh, st story of the heavens, and I'm translating toldos not as generations, but a story here because. Uh, 
Uh, heavens don't really have generations, uh, but what do I know? Uh, this is a story of the heavens and the earth in their being created. So the sages look at this uh, look at this verse and they're like, um, why does it need to say in their creating? That seems extraneous. And from this hint in the text, from this you know extraneous word in the text, they say that uh, you know if you scramble the letters. Uh, it's, scramble uh, letters, you get Be'avraham, through Avraham. And that means that the world was created um, so that Avraham can exist, so that, you know, Judaism can exist. Right? So, here we have an example of the Rashbam interpreting a narrative text uh, against its midrash, against its midrashic sources. Uh, Rashbam will say that is, you know, a uh, the the Drashic interpretation is a, the derivation based on extra words, but that is not the um, that is not the plain meaning of the text, which is this is the story of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's you know a, that's that's a sentence. I don't see you know how you, why you have to go so crazy here. Uh, here's another example. Last time when we talked about Rashi, we talked about Rashi solving a pshat problem with a midrash. Um, when uh, you know Yaakov is fleeing from Esav and he goes and lays down in a place, and then he sees the you know uh, angels going up on the ladder, and God says, you know, I'm here for you. Blah blah blah. Wakes up. So in the um, before he goes to sleep, it says he took from the stones of the place, plural. Uh, when he wakes up, he says he took the stone of the place, singular. Rashi says, simple, very simple. Uh, you know, there's a medrash that solves this problem. There were 12 stones, and uh, they fought about, I get. I want to be under Yaakov. I want to be Yaakov's pillow. I want to be Yaakov's pillow. And God was like, you all will be Yaakov's pillow. And they merge into one. Not very scientifically satisfying, but satisfies the textual problem. Now, Rashbam on the same verse, which I'd recommend doing. If you see if you see a Rashi, um, look at the Rashbam to see what he's not saying. Like, see uh, see what the the plain meaning of the verse that Rashi didn't do because he's sticking to Madrash. So Rashbam says very simple when it says May Avneyamakom from the stones of the place, it means he took. There were stones in the place. He took one, put it under his head, and that's why when he wakes up is singular, the stone. Very simple. Uh, one thing you'll see here is that the Rashbam is, you know, he's attentive to language, but he's also uh, not much of an analyzer of, like, extra words. That's for, you know, Drasha Chazal. Uh, sometimes he's just like, that's how people talk, man. Like, that's just... That's just word, that's just, you know, a sentence. Uh, so, like, the next one. Uh, Olam Yordim, Rashi, their comments on, you know, the order of, uh, you know, going up and going down. Uh, Rashi sees something, you know, solves a, solves a textual problem with a medrash. Uh, Rashbam, according to the plain meaning of the text, there's no need to read any special message into the word Olim, climbing, appearing before the word Yordim. That's the end of his comment, as far as, uh, as, far as I know. Um... But, he, yeah, all he's saying here is, like, that's how people talk. If, you, if, if, it, was going if it was going down before going up, you would have asked me, uh, you would have asked me the other way around. Sometimes that's just how people talk. Don't get your, don't, 
get so concerned. Rashbam is very common sense. Very, you know, that's just how people talk. That's what the words mean. Don't bother me with, like, extraneous information. I'm just reading the text as if I've never seen this text before. Um, to compare another one that we... Uh, uh, that we did with Rashi. R- with Rashi, we noted that in the Bracha of Yehuda, uh, the word tariff is used, and that may be a subtle in- uh, indication that Yaakov is talking about. Uh, Yaakov is also, you know, causing uh, causing into memory, uh, like has its memory of the sale of Yosef, where they come back from Yosef being sold and say uh, Torov Teraf. Uh, Yosef, uh, like an animal tore him apart. Ter- tariff is word here. Yehuda was in, uh, mostly in charge of the selling of Yosef. Uh, so, you know, Rashi points out that. Uh, Rashbam, on the same Pasuk, is uh, all those who understand Yaakov is referring to the sale of Yosef uh, in this verse do not understand the sentence structure nor paid attention to the tone signs. Uh, that's his. Uh, he's. Uh, he's Going at Rashi, his grandfather. That's that's what his grandfather said. He doesn't doesn't buy it. Uh, he's saying, you know, the guy uh, he doesn't understand sentence structure and doesn't pay attention to the tone signs. Uh, you know, the 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 guides towards uh, the Torah reading that are sometimes useful for uh, uh, punctuation. Okay, so here's where it starts to get interesting. Okay, uh, so far we've only seen narrative, and you know, rejecting. Dreshel Chazal on narrative that is controversial, but not so controversial. Let's see him on na- on on another piece of narrative that's going to have more implications. Okay, uh, Rashbam on Bereshit one uh, five says the darkness he called uh, on the pasuk Ulchoshech Karalila. He called the you know the darkness. Uh, uh, night, you know, right when the uh, you know first day happens, um, light is always first and afterwards darkness. It, this is Rashbam talking, and it was evening and it was morning. It is, uh, and it was evening and it was morning is not written here. Vayera vayhi voker is not written here. Vayhi lila isn't. No, sorry, got that wrong. It's not written here, and it was night and it was day. But it's uh, rather it says it was evening and it was morning. The first day became evening, and the sun set, and then it became morning, the morning the following the night, for the dawn broke. Behold, one day was completed from the sixth that Hashem spoke of in the Ten Commandments, and afterwards began the second day. I'm going to boil, that's a little, like, complex, I'm going to boil it a little down to you. Rashbam says the day begins uh, at dawn, rather than at sundown, from the pre, uh, sundown uh, sundown previous, so Chazal say that the day uh, the the day starts at night, and Rashbam says that the day starts at day, which makes it very confusing to say like that, and that also rhymed. But uh, yeah, so the the day starts in the daytime according to Rashbam, and according to Chazal, the day starts you know at sundown the night before. So, this may seem like a you know academic argument. Okay, who cares when the, uh, when the day begins or not? Uh, it actually has huge implications halachically, 
Because when does when when does the Sabbath start? Uh, starts at sundown. When did the holidays start? At sundown. Why? Because that's when the day begins. According to Rashbam, the literal word of God says that no, the day starts at dawn. You're doing it all wrong. That's a problem, right? So the Rushbaum has no com- no compunctions about interpreting things against the halachic derivations of Chazal, which is huge and is not something that is uh, not something attempted for the rest of the medieval era, as far as I know. Um, you know, it, it's very rare to find somebody who does that. And it's a big question as as to, you know, why he did that and why he thought he was able to do that. But it's something that remains controversial to this day. In fact, when Rashbaum, when when Arsgirl printed a, you know, edition of Mikroskadol's Chumash, which has, you know, all the commentators that, uh, all the important commentators, their Rashbaum didn't include this section about the day coming uh, during the daytime and and so on and and that because it was uh, you know they said that uh, some manuscripts don't have it and also we can't imagine that somebody as learned as Rashbam would say such a thing uh, but he did and it was totally in character so this is something that still is controversial to this day the Rashbam did, interpreting against the Darshad of Chazal. Uh, and it's something he knows that he's doing. He knows that it's controversial because he explains himself uh, and in somewhat surprising ways. Uh, let's look at uh, let's look at source number seven. Okay? Uh, this is a commentary on, you know, uh, this is his commentary on Exodus 21.1, which is the start of Parshat's Mishpatim, which has to do with tort law. Uh, and he says, everyone endowed with intelligence. There's, he has a tendency to go like, uh, you know, if you're smart, uh, I don't know what to make of that, but just pointing that out. Uh, everyone endowed with intelligence should know that it is not my purpose to explain halachic rulings as part of my commentary, something I have mentioned already in my commentary at the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev. Uh, I explained there that many such rulings are hinted at by variant spellings in the text, missing words, extraneous letters. Many of these have been covered in the commentary on the Torah by my grandfather Rashi of blessed memory, the same guy who, I said, would have written his commentary like me if he, uh, if he had a second chance, but I don't know. Uh, basically, he's saying the same thing that we've been saying all along. Uh, derivations are built on you know hints, uh, extra words, extra uh, extra letters. Uh, and then he adds, if you want that kind of, uh, if you want a commentary that explains that, listen, my grandfather wrote a good commentary. You should check it out. Um, I have set myself the task of only explaining the plain meaning of the text as it is before us. When I explain legislation, I do so within the context of Derech uh, Eretz, which is translated in Sfari as contribution to civilized behavior. I don't think that is correct. I think Derech Eretz, in the terms of the Rosh, uh, Rosh, uh, Rashbam, means um, you know the, a natural way of speaking or a natural uh, understanding. Um, um, my explanations notwithstanding, when they conflict, when they conflict with halakhic rulings, the latter are supreme. Uh, he's saying that. Uh, 
you know, I'm going to explain legislation according to the plain meaning of the text, uh, but when my explanations conflict with halacha, you follow halacha. And that goes along with what we said before, that he thinks the main point of the Torah is those derivations, not the plain meaning of the text, but he's interpreting the plain meaning of the text. Uh, he makes this even more explicit in his commentary on Exodus 40.35, Shemot 40.35. Anyone who pays careful attention to the words of our Creator will not depart in his exegesis from that of my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo, Rashi, same guy who I said didn't understand sentence structure and the same guy who I said uh, would redo his commentary to be like me if he had a second chance. Again, I'm, 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 I'm sticking to this point. Um, he's saying, basically, if you want to be a good Jew, you should read Rashi. You should read my grandfather. Most of the laws of the Torah which have been attributed through exegesis being derived... Okay, you get the point. Um, the basic approach to his exegesis was to derive meanings from super, super, uh, superfluous words or letters and... Uh, it would gonna like dot 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 that because I've said the same thing a billion times. Uh, he ends off with, "It would be well if you also accepted what I have explained, and that you would do well not to ignore it." Uh, so basically, keep my explanations in mind, but ignore me when it comes to halacha. Rashbam is cognizant of like, ignore me when it comes to halacha. I am not the basis of halacha. I am not the ba- you know, I am not passing halacha here. But the fact that he's saying that the plain meaning of the text conflicts with halacha is itself controversial, no matter how much he says, no, you should really follow halacha. And that co- that controversy, besides for the censoring, uh, art scroll censoring him, it may be why we have so few manuscripts of him, because his, contra- uh, his commentary is explosive. Um, let's look at an example of his, the way that he interprets a legal text. You know about tefillin, right? You wrap it around your arms, uh, you know, and uh, you're following a pasuk. Uh, it will be uh, as a uh, sign on your hands. Okay, how does Rashbam interpret that? He does not interpret it to mean you should take leather straps and they need to be black and they need to have like a black box and then you need to wrap them around your hand. No, he does not do that. Uh, he said, it's an exhortation that this memory should be with you permanently, as if the subject matter had been literally inscribed upon your hand. He's saying that, you know, the literal word of God does not include tefillin. Uh, we derive that from extra words and meanings, but the literal word of God does not include tefillin. This is very, very out there. I, I, I cannot stress to you enough how breaking with the norm this is. So the question is, you know, taking all this into account, the fact that this is very out there for a rabbinic Jew to do. The fact that Rashbam himself says, ignore me when it comes to halacha. And the fact he, he, he even says the main point of the Torah is not the plain meaning of the text. It's the derivations of the halachas in there. Why is he doing this? Why is he writing this commentary if he thinks that's not the point of the Torah it has no practical application, and there's, uh, you know, yeah, why is he doing this? So, let's go back to that first source, Pshatim HaMechudashim Um that phrase I wanted you to keep in mind. Let's first, let's, let's take that phrase apart. First of all, let's note that that's plural. That means there are multiple explanations. Uh, it's a novel idea when you're talking about God's word. It's especially a novel idea if you're talking in the, the you know the 
ten hundreds. I'm not really good with dates. Eleven uh, hundreds, wherever, whenever the Rashbam lived. Uh, I should have done uh, researched that, but whatever. We don't actually know when he lived or died. Okay. Um, there are multiple interpretations possible according to the Rashbam. Hamichudashim that are created or that are made new, renewed, uh, made into, brought into newness. Uh, we tend to think of commentary as discovery. There is a true meaning of the text, and, you know, using the tools uh, available to him or her, uh, the commentator discovers the true meaning of the text. Uh, we don't tend to think of commentary as creation, as creating a new meaning, but Rashbam seems to be implying it here that you create new meaning from the text. Uh, you're not discovering a, uh, you know, the true meaning of the text. You're creating meaning out of it. And maybe that's why he says a true meaning of the Torah as you know, the meaning that was created from it from, uh, by Chazal. That just occurred to me. Take, uh, take, or, take, what, uh, take what you want out of that. Uh, and then Bechol Yom. This is a constant process that there are new explanations uh, of the Torah constantly being advanced, according to the Rashbam, and that his comment and you know Rashi would have redone his commentary along with uh, you know more in line with Pshatim Hamukudashim B'Cholim. Maybe that means he would have done his commentary not with the you know not in the way of you know interpreting with the Medrash's uh, Medrashim and stuff. But ha having the freedom to interpret it as he saw it, as he wanted to, uh, as he wanted to interpret it. Let's go back to that question: Is creativity its own value? Right? Uh, is creativity its own value in a religious tradition, uh, even if it's not guided towards a religious purpose, uh, even if it's not serving a religious purpose? The answer for Rushbaum seems to be very much yes. There's value in a creative experience of interpreting the Torah, even if what you're saying is not relevant halachically, even if you know your 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 ideas should be ignored because of they're they're not halachically relevant. He's doing uh, he he sees creativity as uh, as its own value here as something that has value with or without practical religious application. And it is good, according to the Rashbam, that people are creating new interpretations every day. It is good that multiple interpretations exist. Creativity is a value in the religious tradition of Judaism, and the fact that new interpretations exist is something to be celebrated, not to be shunned or dismissed. And, you know, as CEO or whatever of Misfit Torah, that's definitely something we're trying to do here. Uh, trying to encourage creativity uh, in, you know, thinking about Torah. Uh, even if, you know, it's not immediately religiously relevant, just having people think outside the box is its own value, regardless of whether it leads to halachic innovation or not. Um, so, let's look, let's Let's have a look at what that what that creativity looks like. Like, I want to give you an example at the end of each, uh, towards the end of each thing of that commentator in action. Let's look at the Rashbam in action, okay? 
What do you know about the sale of Yosef? The picture in your head is probably the following. Brothers sell Yosef, right? Uh, Yosef comes to them. He's got the multicolored coat on. Uh, he's, uh, you know, they don't like him. They sell him. He goes down to Egypt, okay? That's the picture in your head. But Rashbam is going to look at this story, you know, completely banishing, you know, any preconceived notions from his head. He's going to approach it like somebody who has seen the text and nothing else. And let's look at what he's seeing. Let's look through his eyes. Okay? So we have Yosef's coming to the brothers. Yosef's uh, going to the brothers. Uh, and they're, you know, discussing you know, what to do with him. They're like, maybe we should kill him. And they're like, yeah, we should kill him. And then Ruvain, Vayomer and Ruvain, Ruvain said to them, uh, do not spill blood. Uh, throw him into this pit that is in the uh, wilderness. Uh, and do not uh, raise a hand to him. Uh, and Ruvain has the intention of coming back later and returning him to, the fa- to his father. Uh, so, Yosef arrives. And it was when Yosef arrived to his brothers. The multicolored dream coat, uh, whatever, uh, you know, they take it off from him and uh, they throw and uh, they take it off from him. and they take him. and they throw him into the pit. Vabor reik in bomayim, and the uh, the pit is empty and it does have water in it, and it doesn't have water in it. Um, and they sit down to eat because that's what you do after you throw your little brother into a pit to die. and they look up. And they see a caravan. Uh, look, and they look up, and they see. They raise their eyes in their sea. Vine orchat Yishmaelim. There is a caravan of Yishmaelim, ba'a migilad. That is coming from Gilad. Ugmalehem uh, nosim, and their camels are bearing nochot utsri velot velot gum bomb and latinum. Growing boys need their latinum. I guess, uh, and to be taken to Egypt, to go down to Egypt, okay? This is very important. Who are the brothers looking at right now? They're seeing Yishmaelim, okay? And they say, Vayomer Yehuda al-Achav, and he say, uh, Yehuda says to his brothers, what do we gain by killing, uh, what do we gain by killing our brother, Vechasinu uh, Estemo, and covering up his blood? Let us go and sell him to the Ishmaelim. Uh, again, the Ishmaelim. Keep that in mind. And let us not do away with him ourselves. Because he is our brother and our flesh. He is our flesh and blood. Uh, you'd think that would prevent them from selling him in the first place, but what do I know? Uh, and the brothers agree. Okay. So, the brothers have made this plan. They're going to sell Yosef to the Ishmaelim. What happens next? Vayavru anashim midjanim socharim. And Midianite traders pass by. Vayim shechu vayalu es Yosef min habor. And they uh, get Yosef out of the pit. Uh, 
and they sell Yosef to the Yishmaelim, for 20 pieces of silver, suddenly the Midianites come, and they get uh, Yosef out of the pit, and they uh, sell him to the Yishmaelim, making a tidy profit, because they were like, oh, look, free slave, not the good kind. And, uh, you know, pick him up out of the pit and sell him to the uh, sell him to the Yishmaelim, and that's how Yosef gets down to Egypt. Who's not mentioned here? Who's not mentioned as part of the sale here? The brothers. You remember the brothers selling uh, selling Yosef. Where are they? It's and who gets him out of the pit? The Midianites, not the brothers. Who sells him? The Midianites, not the brothers. What's going on here? Let's look at the rush bomb. So here's the rush bombs account of events, and it is wild. And he does this just by looking at the text without any preconceived notions. It is, it is beautiful what you can accomplish just by reading carefully. That's the what he's talking about. Okay, While the brothers had been sitting down to consume their meal, having distanced themselves somewhat from the pit into which they had thrown Joseph in order not to be guilty of eating while spilling blood, uh, perhaps his screams for mercy uh, were disrupting the atmosphere of their dinner meal. Uh, again, what do I know? They were waiting for the Ishmaelites who they had seen in the distance to arrive. Remember, Yehuda's like, oh look, Ishmaelites, uh, Ishmaelim, let's go sell Yosef to them. During this, uh, during this period, the Midianites, coming from a different direction, had passed there, saw Joseph in the pit, they go, uh, pulled him up and proceeded to sell him to the Ishmaelites. Again, Midianites look in, uh, look in the pit. They're like, oh, look, free slave. And they pick him up and they sell him to the Ishmaelites and they make a tidy profit off of it because uh, they, didn't, they didn't expend anything to get this guy and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. Um, here's where it gets wild. One may assume that the brothers had no knowledge of this. What? The brothers had no knowledge of this. Even though the Torah attributes the sale of Joseph to the Ishmaelites to the brothers, based on Yosef accusing them of having sold them to Egypt, we would have to say that because of their having been instrumental in bringing about that sale, they're considered as if having assisted in that sale. This appears to me the deeper meaning of the plain text. So basically, the timeline of events is, the brothers are sitting there eating, uh, you know, Yosef is in the distance. Uh, Yosef uh, gets to them, they throw him into the pit. They look up in the distance, Ishmaelites. They're like, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Then uh, the, uh, while they're, you know, eating their meal, talking about, oh, we're going to get some good money from the Ishmaelites, Midianites come, pick up Yosef out of the pit, sell him to the Ishmaelites. Brothers are not involved in this, and they have no idea this has happened. And What's the next pasuk in that in that story? Vayashav Ruvain al habor ein Yosef babor Yosef returns to the pit and he sees Yosef's not in the vihine and behold, Yosef is not in the pit, and he tears his garments. It is also possible that Yosef doesn't know that the brothers doesn't know that the brothers weren't involved. He may very well blame his brothers. But according to the plain meaning of the text, the brothers have a very big oh bleep moment, shall we say, uh, 
where they were like where they go to check on Yosef and he's not there that's wild and that's a sort of creativity that happens when that's uh, when you value reading the text on its own and Rashbam really opens the doors for the rest of us because you know he's the first commentator to reject uh, to you know totally not use midrashic material and he's the only commentator for a long time who's not going to uh, use the halachic material uh, but his idea that pshatim hamechudashim b'cholim uh, is really you know opens he he's there he he gets into the the, the palace of biblical commentator commentary and he throws open the gates for all of us to interpret chumash according to our own perspectives according to our own lens you know maybe we uh, we have to keep the the halacha intact but creative interpretation of the torah is for all of us for the rashbam i don't know if he would say all of us because he might have been an elitist but he opens those floodgates maybe it's a good thing maybe it's a bad thing the rashbam opens the gates so let's let's sum up here okay using our criteria that we've enumerated in the first podcast uh you know first criteria that we enumerated is textual independence versus traditional text uh rushbaum is all the way towards textual independence he is it is probably his defining trait uh literal meaning versus symbolic meaning he's pretty much literal meaning all the way uh, he's not very into reading things as symbolic of other things. Uh, he's going to interpret it with common sense. Uh, mediated versus unmediated text, it's somewhat mediated because he occasionally will have common... He, he sees common sense as having interpretive value. As, uh, you know, if something doesn't make sense, I could, you know, say it... I could come up with a way to make it make sense. Um, linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism. You know, the degree to which you see every word is significant versus, you know, it's just being used in context, uh, all the way towards uh, linguistic contextualism. Uh, he's just like, that's the way people talk. That's how things are written. Uh, interestingly, as a, as a halachist, just the opposite. When he's talking about the halachic derivations from the text, every little thing has significance. But when you're reading the plain meaning of the text, uh, things have their, you know, natural meaning. Uh, on the page versus by the book uh, seems to me to be mostly on the page, uh, but I haven't done that much research into that. Uh, when would I use the Rashban? Uh, I would use the Rashban when I want the plain, simple meaning of the text with as little extras as possible, particularly if it's a halachic text. Particularly if it's a halachic section. Uh, because he's the only uh, medieval commentator who's going to do that, who's going to interpret uh, halachic sections uh, against the drashot of Chazal. Uh, I would also use Rashbam when I want to understand Rashi better by seeing what the alternative is. Like, uh, you know, you see a Rashi and you're like, okay, he solves a pshat problem, but like, what would have been the pshat if I hadn't had Rashi? That's where Rashbam comes in. Um, so... I want to take you back to that comment of uh, Rashbam, where he says that day begins 
during the daytime and not during the nighttime. One of the most vicious attacks on this uh, this idea comes in the form of a uh, a document called the Igeret Hashabbos, or Igeret Hashabbat, or however you want to pronounce it. I don't know. Um, where that explanation of the day coming before night is attacked with this rare combination of passion uh, and you know eloquence and emotion. Uh, the author in his preface describes how the personification of Shabbos appeared to him in a dream and you know told him ten things, nine things, which made him uh, soar to the highest heavens and one thing which made him angry. And you know the nine things about you know, are about the greatness of Shabbos, and one thing is there are people out there who are interpreting the Torah to mean that there is that Shabbos begins in the daytime and not in the nighttime, and I need you to wage war against people who would uh, advance, who would deign to offer such a wrong-headed interpretation. That author, Avram Ibn Ezra is one of, if not the most fascinating figure in all of Jewish history. And that's who we're going to talk about next time. And you should be very excited because I've got a lot to say about Ibn Ezra. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Patreon and like our Facebook page and uh, follow our Twitter and Instagram for, at this point, nothing. Uh, and uh, just, a, just a note, uh, I didn't do this last time, but I should have. Uh, I want to thank some of the sources I used uh, to prepare this. Um, for the Rashi thing, uh, thanks goes first and foremost out to Rabbi Yisrael Herzig, who is my Shunabet Rebbe at uh, Yisraeli Torah, also the, art, uh, the author of the Arsgur Rashi Chemish. Uh, so I'm sure he's benefited a lot of you as well. Um, he taught me most of what I know about Rashi. Uh, and he's a good person to ask. Um, there's also um, there's there's also Wikipedia. There's also a great series on biblical commentators that's available on uh, Yeshiva Haaretzion's Virtual Beit Midrash, and uh, that's where I got a lot of the Rush Bomb stuff. And um, yeah, I think those are this, the mostly the sources I used, unless something else comes to mind. Um, but yeah, just want to you know say thanks to those sources. And uh, again, uh, subscribe on Patreon, uh, like the Facebook page, uh, and get ready for Ben Ezra because it's going to be fun.